Welcome to another episode of Future of Foods interviews. This week I'm speaking to Abby Kucha and Billy Nichols, both from Bryant Research. In this episode we discuss why so many meat eaters don't like plant-based food, looking at the four ends, natural, normal, necessary and nice, and why women are more likely to eat plant-based foods than men. We also talk about the nature and techniques around information gathering at Bryant Research, as well as whether chicken is a health food, and also why 7 billion male chicks are killed each year. I'm Alex Crisp, and thanks for listening. You can leave a donation to Future Foods by following the link on the programme page. Okay, so welcome, um, Abby and Billy, to the Future of Foods podcast, this episode. Abby Culture and Billy Nichols are both research associates at Bryant Research, and they've been looking at various research areas from um, in, in the cellular agriculture space, from uh, factory farming to uh, processed and ultra-processed foods, uh, the egg industry, Brexit, and various things, and we're going to talk about some of those things now. So, welcome to the to the two of you. If you can quickly introduce yourselves and just sort of say how long you've been there and what brought you to Bryant Research. Um, why don't you go first, Billy? Sure. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast, uh, Alex. Um, my name is Billy Nichols. Uh, I've been at Bryant Research now for, ooh, I think, th- three or four months. So pretty early on. Uh, yeah, research associate here. Um, and essentially, yeah, my motivation is I call myself an animal advocate, really keen to do whatever it takes to uh, reduce the amount of animals people are eating and advance alternative proteins is a really exciting solution to the problems with animal agriculture at the moment. Uh, and Bryant Research really is a, a, a brilliant organisation through which to do that um, using research. So that, that's what's brought me here. So what's your educational background before you came there? Was your study in this area? Was it in science or was it in advocacy or? Yeah, it's it's actually it's actually not. I mean, Abby has more of a, a related background, which she'll, she'll talk about. Um, I studied history at university um, and, you know, loved that, found it really interesting. Um, but it was it was my last year of university whilst I was studying history that I got really interested in in, you know, animal farming and and and, and veganism. Uh, and that really brought me from quite an unrelated field into the into the world of social science research, um, which has been yeah an interesting transition, but really, really good fun as well. OK. Uh, and Abby, how about you? What brought you to this this area, to this world? Um, yeah, well, uh, yeah, like, like Bailey said, um, have a uh, maybe a, a bit of a um, direct relationship to, you know, what we do at Bryant. Um I came to, so I'm based in Edinburgh in Scotland. I'm from Canada originally, but I studied um, social psychology during my master's. And I did a, a, my main focus was um, examining the sort of psychological barriers um, behind our attitudes towards meat, meat reduction, um, veganism, and found myself in a group of advocates and researchers that all just specialize in this very niche thing um and i've i've been at bryant for the past seven roughly seven months um and like billy i've always been an advocate of um animal rights environmental sustainability 
and this is kind of just the perfect perfect calling Mm. I think it's a very uh, it's a very interesting area, uh, especially right now in the world, in the world as it is. I think there's I think um, throughout the world there's there's one thing that that's kind of unifies people generally, you know, unless they're psychopaths or something, and that is their love of animals. So it's um, so uh, you know I th I think this industry is is very important and I know you've both been working on some very interesting uh, projects. Can you tell me some of the uh, about some of the things that you've been working on at Bryant Research, Abby? Would you like to Would you like to go first? Um, sure. Yeah. Well, I think uh, recently, um, Chris, our research director at uh, Bryant Research. Um, he he's actually been examining. So he wrote a position paper um, not too long ago, uh, examining the myths or the misconceptions around ultra processed foods um, and how that pertains to people's attitudes around um, the health aspects of plant based products. Um, and this so that he wrote a position paper basically addressing two main things, um, one being sort of the lack of clear guidelines when it comes to. Um, UK health guidelines in defining what processed foods are, ultra processed foods, um, and how, you know, there also is this sort of cognitive bias that consumers hold around uh, associating what is natural with what is healthy. Mm. Um, and I think this is such a great uh, direction to move forward in and to really dig into in food science and food tech and innovation as a whole. Um, because this seems to be something that comes up time and time again. Um, in a paper that I worked on um, not too long ago, which was uh, funded by the RSPCA, um, worked in collaboration with the Social Market Foundation, um, we were examining um, the UK public's attitudes towards different um, policy measures around both animal welfare, as well as alternative protein development. And in a very interesting point that we noted was that when you looked at consumer uh, surveys, questionnaires, health was often a key motivator for adopting more, more plant-based eating um, and cutting out meat. Um, though on the other hand, when we would interview um, people, participants in our focus groups, um, a barrier that omnivores or meat eaters had towards becoming fully plant-based was this this perception that they were too processed and that sort of ultra processing of these novel or new um, products was seen as a major barrier mm. and so this is something that you know affects the plant-based meat industry and cultured meat um just it's a, a very real issue am i able to ask a question i, I just wanted to ask that i mean i i've often wondered um in regard to the work that you do and kind of questioning people whether whether people give you I mean when you're asking people what puts them off eating plant-based food and they say that they think plant-based food food might be ultra processed how how genuine do you think that answer is is it just mm. because they don't don't associate themselves with the sort of people that eat plant-based food, you know, to sort of say that there is a really good reason for this other than I just don't fancy it. You know? Yeah. 
That's a really great question. And this is actually something sort of the the motivation behind those responses is something that I question. And I think particularly going back to uh, my background in studying cognitive dissonance around meat eating, there so there's these sort of common justifications. They're called the four mm-hmm. N's that are, um, I think, this, so this was coined by Dr. Steve Lockton, um, Melanie Joy as well, and um, Brock Bastian. And there, there is this sort of common, these common patterns of uh, responses that meat eaters give when they're asked to confront their, the, the motivations behind why they eat meat. And, and, and you have to ask, I mean, to what extent is that a, a real barrier or is it sort of just like a post hoc um, rationalization? Yeah. And, um, what are the you four know, ends? so th- there's these, the four ends, are kind of four common uh, justifications for why people eat meat, uh, being this idea of naturalness. So I eat meat because I think it's natural thing to do for yeah. humans to do um, normal, right? everyone else does it yeah um necessary right so that's another kind of related to the health thing of like well you know i need i need iron i need whatever mm-hmm. um and then niceness is the fourth end so it's kind right. of this hedonistic drive um yeah that makes that all makes sense isn't it yes yeah um and so, so it's hard to gauge and so it's it's interesting that they give the that they give the answer uh, around natural um you know mm-hmm. say that it's it's not natural because uh they think plant-based food is ultra processed but um so and so this is the work that this is what you've been working on so what you've been working on is their attitudes towards ultra processed or or what they kind of understand ultra processed to be compared to what actually ultra processed is what's um so uh, not well sort of so Chris Bryant, he's written this position paper. I've actually not had anything to do with it, um, but that this I just thought it would be worth mentioning because I think so. He really just goes into explaining where uh, the state of sort of processing is in terms of how do we define that in mm. developing clear, concise guidelines um, and categories for processing. Um, and then he also sort of examines um, sort of pokes arguments in, in the process myth of like, well, um, just because on average things are things that are ultra processed are associated with being unhealthy, that it's not necessarily a causation. Right. Yeah. Um, you can have processed foods that are still healthy. I mean, we look at like um, fortified whole grain bread or cereals. I mean, those are things that are processed and yet they have shown to have, you know, health benefits. Um, But some of our previous work with the RSPCA and examining public attitudes, consumer attitudes towards food, uh, plant-based food and alternative proteins, um, something that we, that was brought up in a lot of our focus groups was this fear of, of, of processing or you know at least this provided ration justification barrier that people would give um yeah so that sort of those two things are related um interesting interesting so uh billy have you had any uh uh input into this this work at all into kind of yeah no this has been mostly chris and abby have taken this both from the position point and the um and the uh, uh the actual attitudes as well um yeah. but 
you know, there's essentially a lot there, a lot that's still to be tapped. And, you know, I think there's there's lots of different causes. I mean, one of the ones that's worth mentioning as well is uh, a lot of people have this, you know, instinctive fear of ultra processed food and plant based meats. A lot of that is because there's there's a lot of sort of animal agricultural lobbyists that really attack plant based meats for being ultra processed. Yeah. Right. Adverts that come out that say, you know, there's the ingredients in plant based meats. You can't understand. You can't spell them. You can't read them. They're too long. Therefore, don't eat them. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that's you know, motivated by this, I guess, this sense that they want me to, to continue on the menu. So, you know, essentially this is, uh, you know, as we've been talking about, a really complex um, uh, and, and pretty multifaceted uh, question. But yeah, the work we've been doing, I think, is, as I've been saying, you know, given some really interesting counters to that uh, and the perception work that we we add to that, I think will will probably guide people as well. So yeah, it's all on our website, uh, paper and the attitudinal research. So please do check it out. Yeah, because of course meat is is uh, is processed, isn't it? It's and you know I suppose I don't I don't know what the difference is between processed and ultra processed personally, but I mean I I suspect meat goes through an awful lot of processing before it's put on before it's put on the shelves, and then it goes through more processing before it's actually fed to people. Because I guess the, the actual kind of cooking part of <laughs> is a, is a form of processing. Um, I don't know whether you know is that is that true i mean is meat processed yeah i mean look of course a lot of processing goes into meat because it starts as a live animal right so you need yeah. to process pretty heavily to, to get a live animal into a consumable meat product um, yeah. and many are then processed further you know, look at things like bacon and so on and there's a lot of processing that goes on there as well um I, you know i think an interesting thing to look at here is is it's let's say we reverse the roles and we say we'll turn to proteins in the mainstream and and meat is this sort of up and coming thing mm. um how easy would it be to convince consumers that um, the meat products that we produce today are natural, normal, nice, you know, not processed yeah. in a way that's concerning? It would be pretty hard. Right? It would it be pretty would be difficult. Pretty... You know, the amount of things we do in factory farms, um, you know, both have got you know, public health risks, um, you know, health risks of, of processing, the animal welfare concerns. You know, these are all pretty big barriers. But I think there's some sort of inertia that comes with the status quo that says, yeah. OK, well, these this is what we already have. Um, and, you know, even though, you know, uh, plant based meats, let's even grant that they're processed and maybe then there's some some unhealthiness there. I think that's questionable. But let's grant it is true. You're comparing it to some really pretty unhealthy meat products that that come with a lot of extra baggage as well. Mm. Um, so the framing is really important here. And, you know, I think that's one thing that we're trying to do is, is try and reshift this and say, OK, let, let, let's look at these in their own right and, and look at the problems here and the benefits. Mm. Um, and I think. No, I think you know alternative proteins really do come out on top when you do that. Yeah, absolutely. But um, I suppose uh, the meat that we eat has been made acceptable through increments, hasn't it? Um, you know, it's it's just it it it's like you say, it's the status quo. It's what everybody does, um, and and really, those people are not going to be seeing your research probably, and so you know, it, it kind of brings us back at some points to how it's all communicated but i suppose we'll kind of get onto this later maybe so so billy um what have you been working on what what can you what can you introduce us to sure yeah well, there's a couple of things well one of the things that i've been working on most recently that's been probably one of the the, the most fun jobs i find i find here at brian research uh is uh, a big annual survey we call it the summer, summer survey we do it every summer um it's a nationally representative survey of 1000 british residents uh and we basically 
go all out with the questions, you know, questions on anything related to food choices, alternative proteins, animal agriculture. We're just trying to get as many insights as we can on, you know, what do what does the average British resident think about, you know, these questions related to food and farming? Um, and, you know, once you cross reference the the findings that you get from that with some demographic information that we collect as well, you get some really, really interesting findings from that that, that no doubt we'll speak about, uh, you know, on, on this session. But, you know, a couple of the ideas for a couple of examples. Uh, one is we asked people at the beginning, how important is it to reduce your individual meat consumption? Right. And we got 53 percent of people coming back and saying, yeah, we think that's to some level important. That's pretty standard. It's a number that's going up given the you know, particular environmental concerns. That's that's relatively usual. But then we asked the same question again a little bit later in the survey, but instead said, how important do you think it is for society in general to reduce its meat consumption? Right. And suddenly that number jumps from 53% to 64% of people who think it's important. Mm. Um, and and that, that sort of finding, I think, is really, really useful because it, it actually does go into the psychology of it, right? And it shows that, you know, when it comes to like the general, okay, let's accept that, yes, climate change is an issue, animal welfare is an issue, we do need to change. There's more people are accepting that than when the but uh, when the uh, the burden is on the individual themselves. Yeah. Um, and, and these findings can, can you, know, uh, you know, motivates what I think is important to change about the food system and and what what it makes me think is okay telling individual people to change is pretty hard to do right fewer people want to do it it's a high barrier but changing things on a societal level right making plant-based food the default in um public catering institutions right schools and so on um making alternative proteins as as uh, available affordable tasty as possible these are all the things that can um actually really go the way to encourage people to change and, and tap into that that desire that they have to change i think it's important um so yeah some findings like that i think have been you know really interesting so were you surprised by the 53 percent of people who said that they had had been uh, reducing their meat intake yeah it's a good question look i, I always wish it's higher do you know what i mean i, I always wish that number's higher i think it should be well, i think higher. it's quite high already i mean i i'm quite surprised by i'm quite surprised by the number because because certainly 53 percent of the people i know haven't increased their meat intake so I, you know, kind of decrease their meat intake. I mean, uh, so it it seems, um, yeah. Look, sure. I mean, I, I come from this as a sort of I'm quite uh, young and new to this field, so I'm perhaps aspiring for you know I haven't been here for the the time when veganism was this really really small niche, right? Yeah. Um, you're right. Positive number. I, I think there's always work to be done to to get it higher. Um, uh, but you know, 53% recognizing this is, is already really important. 64 mm. recognizing it societally is really important. I think one of the reasons I said, you know, I wish it was, I wish it was higher is because uh, another thing we found on this survey is we just asked people, you know, um, would, do you support higher welfare standards, um, on conventional UK factory farming practices, right? Or, or one thing we asked last year along the same line is, you know, here's a list of uh, conventional farming practices, things like cutting the beaks of newborn chickens, killing male calves who can't produce milk. Um, how how sort of acceptable do you find them to be? Right. Um, and consistently we get basically everyone, you know, really sort of like 95 plus percent saying, yeah. I think that stuff's unacceptable or, you know, for, for the for the um, support of uh, high welfare practices. Again, basically everyone thinks it, thinks there should be high welfare practices. Yeah. So there's a kind of disconnect here, right? Because absolutely, basically everyone thinks this is really important, and yet when you actually get to the should you do it question, it's often a little bit harder. 
um uh so you know there's 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 definitely complexity there um but for sure 53 percent is a really good start and i think it means that there's some really exciting consumer markets out there who are willing to change who are ready to change and all they need is the you know the right product the right push the right person um and and you know you're going to see some some dive yeah. changes I guess I guess it takes some momentum, doesn't it? You know, they. It, it, um, I heard. I think it was Paul Bevan at um, at Magic Valley in Australia said that the way to make people um, either switch to cultivated when it's out there or to start eating plant based is just to make it cool. You, you know, to sort of make it seem like it's the thing every every cool person is doing, that it's part of some. You know that if you start doing it, then you are part of the gang that you want to be part of. You're part of the group that makes that you want to be part of. Yeah, I. So it's interesting the generational differences. Um, we did a little bit of in our the report we did on consumer attitudes towards um, animal welfare policies and alternative uh, proteins. Um, when we when it comes to the motivational differences, um, certainly older demographics that opt for plant-based tend to cite health reasons more often, um, which you can imagine makes makes sense. Um, you know, that kind of fear of mortality as you get older, uh, mm-hmm. wanting to eat healthier. Um, and uh, yeah, when you, when you look at kind of the robust trends of generational differences, it oftentimes, yeah, you get this like younger segment um, that is a bit more open to uh, plant-based eating and often more for environmental reasons, um, animal welfare, whereas older generations tend to cite um, more health-related concerns. Yeah. Okay. So which of the projects uh, that you've been working on have you personally enjoyed, uh, uh, Abby, and and why is is that? Um, that's a great question. Well, oh, it's hard to it's hard to choose. There there are the couple ones. Um, I said I suppose more recently, um, uh, colleagues of mine, um, Elise Hankins and Charlotte Flores, uh, the, the the two of us have been starting a new project delving into the role of gender in predicting um, attitudes towards um, plant based eating, and so. This is, you know, something that like has come up a lot in quite quite a few of our literature reviews. Um, I I know Charlotte mentioned this in her or examined this in her report on um, meat shame last year, where she found that men are often um, less likely to address their feelings of meat shame, and women are often more open to, um, you know considering plant-based eating. Um, So men tend to be on average a bit more avoidant of their, the shame brought up and those negative feelings um, when you're reminded of that animal meat connection. And so uh, a new project that we've started is going to examine uh, the the nuances of that. Um, So it's going to be a mix of sort of quantitative survey data and also more intimate kind of focus groups to understand, you know, what are the existing cultural barriers or social um, uh, elements, the, the ways in which diet is still gendered. I think there is this perception that, you know, we're becoming a lot more progressive as a society, um, especially around gender norms. But, um, you know, undeniably, there, there still are those 
um, that time and time again, um, you know, this association of meatless eating and women tend to, on average, lean more towards vegetarianism. It's interesting, um, isn't it? I mean, I, I wonder, you know, obviously the thing I think about straight away is the is is the kind of old story that, you know, man is hunter, woman is 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 gatherer. So, you know, um so kind of naturally men like meat, women like berries. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, there and there's, you know, quite a lot of literature already showing those differences. I mean, this isn't anything new. Like this is quite a robust finding when you look at like the social psychological dimensions of um diet and um meat eating. Um so but our sort of our our goal for this is really to look at all right, we already have this research that proves there there is this trend. So how can we then develop an intervention um, to encourage that segment of the population who are particularly resistant to meatless eating? Um, and, you know, in, in what ways can you coalesce these gender norms with meat eating? So you look at like hyper-masculine or so traditionally masculine men that um, they're that association with like cooking a, cooking a, a nice good steak and, and manliness and um, and sort of leveraging those existing norms um, that are associated with masculinity and trying to, to coalesce that. Um, you know, I think it would be pretty ambitious uh, to try and change someone's entire identity or self self-concept. Yeah. Um, but are there are there ways that we can, you know, um, dispel stereotypes around plant-based eating and make those seem seem less in in con less contradictory to yeah. uh, norms around masculinity it's a very it's a very big question isn't it i i did mm -hmm. do an interview with a couple of people who, who who work in the marketing you know kind of asking them how they thought you can stop people eating meat and how you can sell uh, cultivated meat and and that sort of thing and i i, I guess it's all about you know, there's a combination of factors you need to address, isn't there? You know, you know, kind of you can use guilt by kind of showing people the kind of damage it does to the planet or, or the harm it causes animals, or you can use health. But I was I, I did read somewhere also that when you talk too much about health on on the packaging, it stops people buying the product mm -hmm. because they think they're being, you know, you know, kind of talked down to or something. There are a lot of things that are both intuitive you, or seems intuitive in hindsight um, when it comes to studying perceptions around uh, plant-based meat, alternative proteins. Um, on the other hand, there's always surprising findings. Um, I talked about this a little bit already, um, people's perceptions around um, health of plant-based products. Mm. Um, a big, you know, study we, we did back um, last spring and summer um, found that, you know, health, health reasons uh, are a commonly cited um, motivator, but also a commonly cited, um, you know, detractor, I guess. Um, yeah, I think as well, um, when it comes to a dispelling um, 
you know, people's attitudes towards animal welfare, you, you see a lot of contradictions, right? Like overwhelmingly people support the end to factory farming, even staunch meat lovers. So um, we had focus groups where we segmented the population into um, animal lovers, um, people kind of in between animal sympathizers, people with sort of no views, a little bit like apolitical on the, on the matter, and then like self-proclaimed meat lovers. Um, and overwhelmingly, you know, the vast majority of the population was when they're asked, would you support a ban on factory farming? Most people were in support. Um, yeah. You know, when people realize or if when they're told that actually if if they're in America, for example, kind of 95 percent plus of the meat that they eat has come from industrial farming, or in the UK, I think it's closer to around sort of seventy-five percent of of uh, of meat dates is around industrial farming. When they, I suppose there is a, a a misunderstanding that people think that the meat they eat mm-hmm. probably okay, or that they it's probably lived an all right life, but it hasn't kind of gone through this kind of brutal system. Yeah, no, for sure. I think there are definitely. I I would say, or I would. Uh, predict that there is an element of a bit of a a self-serving bias or narrative that people have um, because, you know, we also ask people, uh, you know, do their attitudes around um, meatless eating, do you think that the population as a whole should be eating less meat and overwhelmingly the majority agrees, but then when you probe people in focus groups on their personal views and their personal intentions, Mm. um, it, there almost is this sort of separation of, uh, oh, oh, now, now, I, now, sort of breaking that ab- abstractness of like this is a a problem outside of me, but then being confronted with the reality that I am part of that, yeah. um, it, I think it jars people a bit, and that's when you get this sort of um, that that cognitive dissonance and how people repair that that state of. Um, shame or justifying one's actions i mean that's when you get the kind of uh oh well you know i need the meat for protein or well i i, I don't eat red meat i eat chicken yeah. um and that's a common uh misconception or uh, perception as well is that um uh something like 75 percent of people uh in um our rspca survey could believe that chicken or they, they perceived it as a health food as a healthy food um and that it was also, um, you know, not not bad for the environment. Um, so you get, I think, there's also this element of species differences that uh, that can allow people for a little a little bit of leeway, mm. um, right? So it's like, oh well, at least I don't eat beef. Um, yeah. Red meat is the problem. Um, yes, that's very interesting, isn't it? Um, I think uh, yes, like you say, there's that's that's quite a common trait. I'm I'm curious to know how. Um, because you said that you you kind of press people further in the uh, in the focus groups, so and so you ask the questions, and then do you ask them why they think this way? Yeah, I think um, well, with focus groups, it's it sometimes it can be a bit. Um, there's a concern of probing too much. Um, one you know, you want to be, you want to be careful that we're not um, leading people into giving certain answers. So we do try to keep our focus groups fairly open. Mm. Um, and, 
and sometimes they are quite, you know, self-selected. So if we're interviewing um, people that are proclaimed meat lovers, we can expect certain answers. Um, but then, you know, some in the other thing about focus groups is a lot of a lot of things are um, sort of unspoken. And so picking up on the the nonverbal language, you know, some people can kind of you can see them getting a little bit uncomfortable and um, there's a lot of over talking. Um, people can start to get a little bit defensive. Um, so we I think when talking about sensitive issues, which and these things are are considered quite sensitive issues for a lot of people, mm. um, animal welfare, meat eating, because they are they're they're moral issues um, mm. when you confront that animal welfare aspect. Um, so we try not to probe too deeply, um, but we because we want to see where the conversation flows and how you know other respondents could bounce off of each other. Um, and their answers yeah. would be different if they were interviewed sort of individually you know, rather than in a group. Yeah, I mean, that that's the other thing, too, about um, focus groups is that um, I think th I think that there is a an added benefit of having a small group setting. Um, people may feel less pressured to give a, a socially desirable answer if they feel like they're in a group with like-minded people. Mm -hmm. um, but so there, I think there's always a bit of a cost and uh, a reward, you know, a bit of a trade-off. It's important to, to survey diverse groups of people, but, um, you know, in our uh, RSPCA survey, um, looking at public attitudes towards alternative proteins, um, and policies, we we sort of segmented our focus groups so that they were, you know, people didn't necessarily always know before, but we, we tried to make it clear, like, okay, you you all gave similar responses, and I think that really signals to people, okay, I'm in a safe space, I don't have to feel judged, I can be a bit more honest about how I feel, um, mm -hmm. knowing that there are other people that probably have similar attitudes towards me. Um, I think can actually be uh, really helpful. And then, uh, you know, assuming obviously we would uh, analyze those as a whole, right? You take all of the, these segments and then try to gauge overall. But I think there really is an added benefit to ha having this kind of intimate space um, of, of multiple voices as opposed to just, you know, I mean, it's important to do questionnaires and have a really representative um uh, res responses of the population that's why we do these huge surveys of like you know a thousand responses but um we we really try with a lot of our projects if we can to get more in-depth qualitative um insights to to really kind of fill in those gaps and provide nuance to yeah. uh understanding yeah how people feel about alternative proteins there is this um because i was I wasn't sure uh, how it was done. I was wondering whether it was done through online questionnaires or whether it was done uh, in in face to face meetings. Is it kind of generally face to face meetings and the focus groups? Yeah, with our with our focus groups, um, it tends to be I guess face to face in in the sense of a, a Zoom call. Um, okay. we, I mean, we all uh, work sort of remotely, and um, uh, yeah, there typically through um, Zoom, Google Meet. So, you know, we want to make sure that there is that face-to-face -face interaction and you establish trust and rapport. Um, 
in, in as a kind of a supplement to these an anonymous questionnaires. Right. And how do you uh, how do you recruit the people that come along and attend these? Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, like a lot of uh, research um, recruiting online. Um, we use there's a platform called Prolific Academic um, that a lot of like universities use. Um, people just register their interest to participate in surveys um, and then they can provide their email uh, which we follow up with them just if they want to be part of our focus groups um, and that's typically what what we use in a sort of standard practice by a lot of researchers. But does that mean that most of the people who join up are academics? No 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 so this is just the public like average people um it's sort of i think amazon amazon has an, a similar platform called um mechanical turk and this is you know you can even you can tailor like the filter to get certain demographics so if you really want to make sure you're representative of the population you can make sure you're um want, want to like have a representative um income gender uh by, by region as well so um it's not that's not academics, but as an academic, you would register yourself on the platform to seek out, you know, um, people just making cat. I suppose the risk there is that you are not, arguably, you are not, you, you are not getting a broad sector of society because, you know, the, the kind of older population might not uh, know about these sites or may not be, have any um, exposure to them at all. So, um Perhaps you wouldn't get the boomers answering these questions or you wouldn't get the. Um, actually, I we find that we do get a pretty representative sample. So, again, you can you can tailor it so that you have a fairly like normal distribution of responses. And mm. I would say we we get a. um, Yeah, it's that like you can tailor it to be sort of proportionate to the population. Um, so we get a fair amount of like middle aged to like older people even in our focus groups as well like we get um quite a fair amount of you know middle-aged um older respondents um yeah and, and that's you know again the downside of re recruiting through um you know schools right like universities often have that problem like if you're running uh, you know trying to recruit through university platforms so we we strategically like use prolific as a way to get a more representative sample but of course there's always going to be downsides to, to yeah, trying yeah. to sample populations so okay well welcome back billy hello yeah thank you for being yes. back apologies for poor connection no it's no problem at all you were telling us about uh about the male chicks about the male uh you know non-egg producing chicks yeah, well, yeah, you asked me a great question. I was sorry to be cut off from it. Um, yeah, it's about some recent uh, survey work I've done um, on the industrial egg industry. Um, yeah, and particularly this this case of, of, of male chicks essentially being killed at birth um, because they're an unwanted byproduct of this industry, right? So they, they can't lay eggs, they're not wanted, um, so, so they're killed. And, and you know, the, the numbers here and the methods are, are pretty shocking. Um, you know, for example, most of the uh, the the way that most uh, chicks in the in Britain are killed, uh, well, in the in the in the words of the British Egg Information Service, they're humanely gassed, uh, and then they're also um, often if if gassing is an option, they can be macerated alive, so just thrown into meat grinders while the chicks are still alive. Um, so you know, pretty pretty grim methods of of slaughter, um, and also really huge numbers as well. Twenty nine million in the UK, 
Um, and then once you go globally, 7 billion annually kills. Um, so these are really, really big numbers. Um, and uh, I think a really important finding from the, the work we did on this was the majority of Brits don't even know that no. this is a practice, right? Well, I was so, just about to say, I was just about to say, if you asked any Brit whether they thought that was all right, I would be surprised if it was anything less than 100% would say, would say no, right? Yeah, exactly, right? I mean, it's a really hard thing to justify we only got 41% of respondents. And this is when we gave them a few options of like, what do you think happens to male chicks, right? Only 41% correctly identified what happens, right? So majority don't know. Um, yeah. And as, as you said, we actually got 82% of respondents felt in, in some way uncomfortable about this, a few more in neutral. Um, so, you know, kind of lower than you might expect, but still obviously a really, really high number. Um, and, and you know, I think these these stats speak, speak to a very problematic part of the industry, right? The, the fact that most consumers don't know when they're buying eggs, that this is a, this is a part of this, this farming practice is, I think, a real problem. Uh, motivates, I think, a, a few changes, you know, motivates re retailers to be more more transparent and more more honest about this. Um, you know, perhaps having some labeling on their cartons, right, that that make aware some of the animal welfare concerns, the animal farming practices. I think policymakers also have a responsibility to, to, to see that and to think, OK, this is something most people don't know about and most people aren't supportive of. So maybe we should make some legis legislative changes here. And that, that's something that countries like France and Germany have already done. Um, so, yeah, again, it's a question of perception here. And, and, and I think one that that really shows that a few of the farming practices that we have in this country um, are, are, are ones that really, really should change. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, um, I suppose the kind of difficulty there is that kind of people kind of ignore it and, and tell themselves that it's not because, you know, it's, it's, you know, we are kind of living in a world where there's so much information, you know, so much white noise, that it's, it's kind of hard to kind of decipher the truth. I mean, do you find that from your, your, your groups that you you have a good understanding of public attitude now you know do you understand the attitude of the nation in regard to alternative proteins uh, billy I should let you talk a bit i think since you've been absent sure. yeah i mean look that's a good question because the the stuff that we're looking at is really really complicated so it's obviously on a national international level and it's also really delving into the sort of um psychology of how people feel about this very personal emotional question of food right um so you know it can be really hard to, to to glean insights here um i think you know i think what we've spoken about already shows that we're getting some really interesting data here that 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 speaks to um uh you know a pretty good knowledge of how people are feeling about this but I think there's also a lot of contradiction, and I think it's worth acknowledging that. And you know, any good researcher is going to acknowledge contradictions and limitations in their work. Uh, you know, one that that we often grapple with is this uh, uh, this question of the, the value action gap, right? So, so you know, essentially, that the value action gap is okay. Here's a lot of data that we found that says that most people are you know totally unhappy and and you know pretty horrified with how animals are farmed in in this country. Um, you know, let's say you know 80, 90 to one hundred percent of people are really unhappy with that. And yet the vast majority of people are buying these products, right? So there's, yeah. there's a gap there between the values and the, the actions. Um, and, and you know, that's something to grapple with as researchers, because, it, you know, it, it, I think it means that whilst this uh, attitudinal research is really important, um, th there's more that needs to be done, right? We, we don't just want to look at that. Um, so, 
for example, you know, another thing that we look at is um, uh, what are the actual, what's some actual good evidence of practical solutions that can help change the way people eat, right? So one thing that's recently is this um, a study we're doing with uh, restaurant nudges, right? So when you're actually going into a restaurant, change some things in the restaurant, like where are the plant-based options put on the menu? How are they communicated to, to the consumers? Um, and we're, we're implementing them in a restaurant at the moment. We're doing things like menu changes, informational cards and promotions and so on. And we're actually analyzing the data of, of purchases, right? So this is something that's consumer actions, not, not values, but actions. Mm. Are people buying plant-based stuff? Are these really pretty small changes making a difference to the way people eat? You know, what is the impact of that over time? Um, so, you know, to me, I think, yes, I think we do have a pretty good idea of, of people's perceptions and it's growing. You know, there's lots of research being done and it's not just by us, um, but it, that needs to come in conjunction with research on actually, okay, now we know this, what are the, you know, what are the things that we can actually do to change, change the way people are eating here? What are the things that work? Um, yeah. So it's, it's this, a balance. And is this, uh, is this part of the, um, I mean, you know, as researchers, I suppose it, it's not necessarily part of your role to sort of come up with solutions and to kind of think of, of ways of, um, of changing people's behavior. But is that, is that part of the role you do when you kind of work, work, um you know you do work for organizations who who kind of who kind of commission you do they commission you to sort of look into things like this or is this yeah just just personal interest i mean you know i i would say certainly for myself as a researcher i i am trying to come up with solutions here and 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 at bryant research our, our main mission you know the thing that motivates all of our work is to try and mainstream alternative proteins and 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 reduce animal suffering right so you know ex- explicitly in our research is this um this effort to try and put you know make sure that alternative proteins and the protein transition is is moving forwards right um so yeah often we'll be commissioned by alternative protein companies that that might want to hear okay what's the most effective marketing strategies that we can use to encourage people to buy our products but you know also when we're doing um when we're doing our own research as well uh what we really want is to have some actual tangible solutions here where we can you know give this to you know policymakers, food service leaders people who work in the animal protection movement and say okay here are the things that we think work or based on this research um mm. so, so it's a pretty explicit part of what we do yeah interesting and do you find that they are that people you give this information to are acting on it you know do you find that they kind of it it influences policy has it had any influence yeah, it's a really good question. I want to I want to ask Abby to speak on this as well, because I know she's been here longer than me. Uh, it's it's a struggle. Um, uh, perhaps, Abby, you could give some examples. But I, I often find that one of the hardest things to do with research is to effectively communicate that to the stakeholders. Uh, and that's something we've you know, we're giving a lot of work to at the moment. We've got a, a really good um, head of comms, Aditi, who, who thinks about this quite a lot. Um, but the question is, you know, how can we get we've got these research findings? How can we communicate to communicate them to people in the movement? And crucially, the people who have the power to change as well. Um, Abby, do you have some examples of this? Because I've, I've got to say, I, I don't have too many. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, in terms of seeing, you know, I think it's it's hard to measure. Tr- it's hard to measure change. Um, I mean, it's something that you can do over time. And I think when it comes to the policy sphere, um, it can be kind of. Um, one step forward, two steps back sometimes. Um, you know, there was, I was, it, I was there 2021 or 2022, um, where the UK government commissioned this huge um, report on uh, national food strategy and a specific, very specific um, 
thorough recommendations um, around um, transforming the food system and encouraging um, uptake of, of alternative proteins in plant-based food was something that was really hit home that really um, kind of was a, a driving force in that paper. Um, and then, you know, that was commissioned, but then nothing really went forward with that. Um, I think you kind of have to take the small wins and it's, it's something that sort of creeps up over time. Um, I definitely think overall, I mean, you can see it in um, just looking at consumer data for different companies, um, overall like sales data for plant-based protein companies. Um, and there's quite a few have that have hit the market um, just in, in the last couple of years and have been really growing in traction. Um, especially in the UK. So I think just observing that like proliferation of uh, market expansion across the EU and the UK, um, on the other hand, I mean, there's also been recent sort of backlashes from uh, governments in the EU around like labeling guidelines, which is, you know, something at Brian that we're uh, trying to, to work on and grapple with um, in our upcoming projects. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I, uh, I did a a very uh, kind of basic piece piece of research through LinkedIn when I just asked people what's what's uh, what it was that turned them vegetarian, and I got I think I got about sort of twenty kind of short narratives that that sort of said that you know they became vegetarian because of this experience or that experience, and there was a lot of them. Uh, said that they'd become vegetarian after watching a particular film. So they'd seen kind of Cowspiracy or they'd seen the film about the octopus um, or kind of various other ones. And I think um, I think there are kind of various uh, means to 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 convert people, aren't they? You know, kind mm-hmm. of often you can meet, you know, if you're a man, you might meet a girl who is a vegetarian and then you might become a vegetarian or there are you know you know there are kind of lots of entry points into the world of vegetarianism aren't there which yeah yeah that that's something that's definitely of a uh sort of on the agenda um not not trying to manipulate men into eating um less meat um per se but um just exploring like the um what you touched on is that sort of the social aspect of diet and um another project that is sort of in the works is examining um sort of the the spillovers of so how the how um diet is socially contagious right um it is i mean food rituals are something that are just undeniably uh, a core part of of human culture and so understanding the nuances of that um and you know why some people may even be more or less resistant to um you know diet dietary practices as a social behavior um i mean going back to justifications for eating meat right uh the idea that it's normal it's it can be very difficult to get over that feeling of like i'm not like other people around me um and so you know that also can that that can be a really effective intervention is is seeking community and um being having that exposure normalizing um plant-based eating so absolutely i i yes i agree there's there's many facets to this isn't there because obviously you know we've been eating meat for thousands of years so it's 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 a very hard habit to crack 
So I was just, uh, you know, sort of finally, I want to ask uh, you both um, just to take a couple of minutes. Uh, is there an area of research that you would like to undertake, but you haven't had the chance yet? Is there something um, on your agenda, on your wish list of of research projects? Why don't you go first, Billy? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, look, there's there's so much research that needs to be done in this space. It's really early days for this movement, and there's there's you know a million and one things to do. Um, I think one that's really interesting to me that I want to do more research on soon is the question of vegan pet food, which uh, I think you've you've had a few people chatting about this on your show, and they've they've been really interesting episodes. Yeah. Um, but essentially, it sounds sort of surprising to people at first but you know pet food is actually a really huge part um of why the meat industry has um some real problems a big contributor to the yeah. to the issue industry you know the, the the stats that have just come out on this recently show that you know uh, globally and this is a conservative calculation uh nine percent of all terrestrial livestock each year is consumed by pets and in, in countries like the us that rises to 20 percent, right so this is out of about 80 billion land animals who are killed right 20% of that is, is going to pets, right? So this is a huge, huge number. And obviously you can imagine the, the sustainability issues with this as well. And the the, the, the benefits you get from moving to, to vegan dog food or vegan cat food. Um, we look specifically in dogs and cats here because they make up about 95% of the pet food. Well, that, cultivated uh, meat, pet food, of course. Yeah. Cultivated meat is probably a, obviously a part of this as well. Um, and there's now really good research to show that um, uh, dogs and probably cats as well uh, can thrive on a, on a plant based diet. You know, there's still questions here, of course, um, you know, particularly around cats. We need more research in this because um, it's in early stages, but it looks positive. Um, and especially if the food is nutritionally complete. Right. So if it's coming from a well-respected commercial brand, um, actually transitioning dogs and cats onto uh, uh, vegan pet food, you know, be that plant-based or cultivated um, could have really, really huge benefits. So, so, so one thing I want to do is, is look into some consumer perceptions there, right? You know, yes. what do people think about this topic? I've actually, we've published a sort of preliminary insight on this on the website, um, but I want to go into more detail, you know, what might be the best strategies to to convince people that this is a good idea? What will push people in the right direction? What are the barriers? I think this is a, a an area of research with vast untapped potential. So, yeah, I'm really I excited. I agree. It's very future. useful. I think we might be able to, we might find it easier to persuade our pets to eat uh, plant-based food or, or cultivated meat than we will be able to persuade people. So yeah, I think that's a really a really useful area of research. What about you, Abby? Um, yeah, I think the pet food stuff is a very kind of uh, hot topic area, and um, yeah, exactly as you said, um, people may be more open to feeding their pets these alternatives, um, which might help shed a light on why um, th those sort of resistors that humans um, human consumers have. Um, another area I think personally um, sort of deviates a little bit from this stuff, but um, uh, my uh, colleague Charlotte Flores and I, we've started working on a little bit of a sort of think piece around um, the linguistic aspects of um, meat and animal names and how our euphemisms can shape our or reflect our resistance and openness towards meat or cutting out meat. Um, so that that's something that I've, you know, brought up at Brian and something I think a lot of us are all um, kind of curious about is, is the relationship between the euphemisms um, used for meat names, right? So think about just something as simple as like pig versus pork um, and um, countries 
or cultures with, you know, more processed meat. Um, so how, how does language help disguise or help uh, diso- allow us to dissociate the animal from the meat? Um, and yeah, how, how unique is that um, across cultures? So that's something that I think um, personally from my, my social psych background is something that I, I would that's love very, to. That's a very interesting idea, isn't it? You know, like a few things came to mind when you, uh, when you mentioned that. So, you know, we often, you know, we can give kind of lovely names to things that are actually not very nice, like kind of black pudding or, mm. or sweet bread or mm-hmm. or something like that so uh so yes i think that would be that would be very interesting to see um well i'd like you know i would like to thank you both for coming on this 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 episode it's been very very interesting and uh i always i always like to kind of judge an episode by how much i've learned and i've learned a lot so um it's it's been great to have you on and um i hope we get to speak again in the future Pleasure to be on, Alex. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much.